Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. Good morning, again. My wife and I were uh, on a two-week vacation. Uh, we went to Walmarts in four different small towns, and pretty much they're all exactly the same. So that was nice. It was exotic, you know. I mean, it wasn't like too exotic. That'd be Target, but, you know, Walmart. So uh, every year I come back from vacation and I have some sort of like fresh idea, you know, like uh, this is what God was speaking to me about while I was gone. And this year's no different. This is what God was speaking to me about while I was gone. But just because I'm coming off kind of a, you know, emotional high, rested, doesn't mean that this isn't also still biblical truth. This is not just, you know, oh yeah, Jim's all hyped up after vacation. I mean, that's a little bit true too, but this is also what's in the Bible. Now, before we get to Acts chapter 2, which is where we're going to be, and if you have a paper Bible, you can go ahead and find Acts chapter 2. It'll be on the screen when we get there. But before we do that, I want to review a little bit of our church history that I know some of you have heard this a hundred times and you might zone out. Please don't zone out. But some of you have never heard this story. And so uh, in order for us to understand where we're going today, I want to review a little bit of our church history. In 2008, this building that we're sitting in was empty. There was no church meeting here. It was just an empty church building. It was in uh, okay shape, but it needed a little TLC. And not only was there this church building here, but these two houses to my right, uh, your left, that we happen to own. And everything was empty and just needed a little bit of love. And so my wife and I moved here in 2008. I was 26 and she was 25. We had no kids. We moved here to what was called plant a church. Now, that might sound funny to you. Plant a church. How do you plant a church? Well, that's just what we call starting a church, okay? But True Vine was a church that was started from scratch. And actually, that's how every church gets started. Churches don't just... Uh, pop up overnight. Every church that's ever been started got started because someone at some point began to teach the Bible and gather people and introduce them to Jesus and develop them. And, and over time, a biblical congregation emerges. Well, that's what we did here. So in 2008, my wife and I moved here and we took the really aggressive approach of sitting on our porch and waving at all of our neighbors because we were right down the street from a bus stop and we would, neighbors would walk to and from the bus stop or there's a Lawton Elementary School right up around the corner. There's the American Legion Park right down there. There's a bar. Uh, and so there's just a lot of foot traffic and we would sit on our porch and we would wave at people. And there, I remember this lady that had like a five-year-old with her and then a, a little baby named Columba. Her name was Cozy. And she would, yeah, you, Columba, that's you. You were a baby at one point. You weren't hatched from an egg. You were born. And, and I remember meeting Cozy. I remember meeting Chico. He was sitting on my stoop. And I was, like, not used to that. So I went up and met Chico. 
Uh, we started our first Bible study in our living room when we lived right here with 11 people. In October of 2008 was the first Bible study. That Bible study grew from 11 people to 20 to 30. And within a year, it was 40 people. Actually, it wasn't even one Bible study. It was four Bible studies of 10. We had a, this little thing going. So in October of 2009, we got those 40 people into this room. So it took a year and a half before we ever had regular Sunday morning services. We started meeting in this room on Sunday mornings and we had a service at, I think it was 10.30 in the morning. We started in October of 2009 and we got this church rolling. Now in those early days, we used to give our time to what were really foundational things in the church. My wife and I gave most of our time to teaching basic biblical principles. I remember like just having to explain basic stuff like Jesus is God. The Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We weren't even going into like deep stuff. We were getting the basic foundational stuff, which actually is exactly what you're supposed to do when you're starting from scratch. Establish the foundation. Don't be talking about what angel visited you in a dream. You know, like, let's, let's establish this. The Bible is true. Let's get that covered first, and then we can talk about, you know, angel feathers and stuff like that. But we were focusing a lot of our teaching on foundational biblical principles. We were developing leaders, and we were ba- being active in the community. This is the season of the church where we were having large thousand-person gatherings in the park every summer down the street, and... Uh, I feel like every couple that ever came to the AA meeting in our church basement, I did their wedding. And uh, it was just activity in the community. I would sit in the Dunkin' Donuts on Torsdale Ave and I would write my sermons in Dunkin' Donuts. And I would always, I would smell like Dunkin' Donuts for days. You'd get that like must on you, that Dunkin' Donuts aroma. And I would write my sermons there and I sat in Dunkin' Donuts so much that the employees from Dunkin' Donuts started inviting me to their houses. So I would go to their houses and meet their families. And uh, this, is, this is how we did it. We were active in the community. We were present in the community. We were doing basic stuff. And we are just developing leaders. We are taking huge risks on leaders, on who might be a leader in our church. And I've shared some stories about that. I'm not, I have a whole list of how not to do it uh, that I'm not going to get into today. But we gave ourselves to those things. But then, over time... As the church grew from 40 to 60 to before COVID, 225 people, we began to drift. I don't know if drift is the right word, but our our attentions went away from teaching foundational principles, being active in the community, developing leaders to preparing budgets, organizing church services, maintaining a building, and all of a sudden, well, it really wasn't all of a sudden, actually. Gradually, I began to see that the stuff we did at the beginning was not the stuff we were doing 10, 12 years in. And I have this problem where about every 90 days, I have this urge to read the book of Acts. And so every time I would read the book of Acts, I would see, hey, I remember that. I remember when it was just a loosely organized group of people with no bylaws, no governing board, no budget. It was just 
a bunch of Christians who were gathering together, studying the Bible together. And I would, I would remember that, and I would be like, how do we get back to that? And that's been, I think that that is a struggle for every person in church leadership, pastors, elders, deacons, you know, anyone that wants to see the church look like the Bible, they struggle with some of the things that we do in church that don't look anything like the Bible. It doesn't even mean that they're bad. It's just like you don't necessarily see it in the Bible and the stuff in the Bible you want. Now, over the last month, I've had many conversations with pastors, church leaders, church members from other churches. You know, we spent two weeks on the road. Before, I, before we left, I talked to the pastor of Mercy Gate up the street. I said, how you guys been doing since the pandemic? He said, you know, it's been a little rough, like 30% of our church has not come back. And uh, it kind of feels like we have to replant the church. And I talked to uh, the pastor from Crossroads, I think they changed the name, but Crossroads here on Comley. I said, how have you guys been doing? He's like, yeah, it seems like uh, roughly 30% of the church has not come back. And I kind of feel like maybe we need to go back to replanting the church. I contacted one of the pastors at the other alliance, uh, a church in our denomination in West, uh, Northwest Philly in Maniunk. I said, how you guys been doing? This is a larger church, like 900 people. I said, how you guys been doing uh, since the pandemic? He's like, you know, we used to have about 900 and now we're about 600. So 30% of the church, roughly. He's like, I think this fall we're gonna just kind of try to replant the church. I went to a camp, this, uh, John and Judy were there and preached. I spoke to pastors that I've known for 15 or 20 years. I said, how's your church doing? All of them said, you know, it's like a third or 30% of our church just hasn't come back. They either got upset because we were wearing masks or they got upset because we weren't wearing masks or they got upset about some political thing and we couldn't make everyone happy. And so we're about two thirds of what we used to be. Kind of feels like we need to like, I don't know reestablish, rebuild, restart. I spoke to uh, one of my family members who simply attends their church and she said basically the same thing. And that's essentially exactly where we are. I look at the numbers, about 30% of our church is just poof. You know, like I don't know where they went. We've made attempts to reach out. Some have really legitimate, valid reasons that they're not here. Others don't even respond to anything. And it has felt to me kind of like, maybe we just need to replant a little bit. Maybe we need to like go back to what we used to do in the early days, focus on like foundational biblical principles, develop leaders, get active in the community, do those things that worked so well for us in the early days and focus a little less on paperwork, meetings, things like that. Does that make sense? Well, if we're gonna do that, if we're gonna do something like that, we really ought to get our cues from the Bible, shouldn't we? Yeah, okay, well, that is the correct answer. So, say all that, let's go back to Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two is, we call it, it's the story of Pentecost, but many people call this the birthday of the Christian church. You know, uh, before Pentecost, there was no 
church. They were disciples, but they weren't organized. There was no such thing as a as an, uh, Christian elder. There were Jewish elders, but there were no Christian elders. Um, communion was brand new. Uh, the way Jesus taught about baptism was brand new. And so Acts 2 is really seen as kind of like the birthday of the church. So go to Acts 2. I'm going to read Acts 2 verses 1 through 4 really quickly just to get you in the right mindset of what's going on here. This is now 50 days, only 50 days after Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. We're not very far. We're not years down the road. We're, we're like seven weeks since that. So on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Now, this is an incredible thing. They're all in one place. That alone is incredible. The church at this point is only 120 people. Like the whole worldwide church of Jesus is only 120 people. If you just go back back up to um, chapter one, it's about 120 people. And all they've been doing for the last 10 days is praying. Jesus said, do not leave Jerusalem. Do not leave this town. Do not go home until you've received the Holy Spirit. So That took 10 days, and they gathered regularly for prayer for 10 days, and then all of a sudden, this happens. They're praying together. There's a sound like a mighty windstorm that fills the room. The room is shaken. Everyone present is filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin speaking in other languages. They didn't even have a paradigm or a concept for speaking in tongues. This is a brand new thing to them, and... uh, That's the beginning of the church. It is birthed in unity, it is birthed in prayer, and it is birthed in the supernatural. All of these things are present at the birth of the church. Now, as I move on, what I want to look at is four biblical expectations that you should have for your church experience. Four biblical expectations that you should have for your church experience. I say biblical expectations because sometimes we have expectations that just aren't biblical. I read a survey this week of like, what do people expect from their church? Number one, everything they gave had to do with the first time they visited a church, not belonging to a church. So it was like, I expect there to be good signage. I expect there to be hot coffee. I expect there to be ample parking. And I thought, you know, that's no different than like a football stadium or a Target or a Walmart, if you're me, uh, you know, like the, you haven't touched on anything that's unique to the church. I expect the people to be friendly. Okay, that's good. The people are friendly at CVS. You know, like there were no nothing in that list distinguished the church as a spiritual gathering. And so those are the expectations that people have, and I, those aren't necessarily wrong expectations, but they're just not the what the Bible primes us to be prepared for. It's not what the Bible primes us to be hungry for and to build toward. So these are biblical expectations. This is not an exhaustive list. You could probably add a fifth and a sixth and a seventh, but these are four that are in this passage. And I want you to pay attention. (laughs) I want you to pay attention every week, but I really want you to pay attention today because I'm going to ask you at the end of this sermon, did any of these four stand out to you? as something that God 
is nudging you toward doing something about. Not something that you're going to nudge me to do something about. Something God's nudging you to do something about. Okay? All right. Let's read verses uh, 5 through 12. We'll just pick up where we left off. This is Acts 2, starting in verse 5. Remember, the room has been shaken. It's filled with tongues of fire. The whole, everyone's filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear in their own languages uh, being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia... Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. Here's the first biblical expectation that you can have for your church experience. You should expect a diverse, spirit-filled community. You should expect that. You should expect that the community of faith is going to be both diverse and spirit-filled. I want to throw a map up of the passage. They list like 15 different locations uh, of where people came from. So if you pull up a map from 2021, it's not going to totally click for you. This is a map from 35, I think this is from 35 uh, AD. So this is about the time that this was written. So this Pentecost thing happens in Jerusalem, which is right kind of almost in the middle of see Jerusalem with the red dot. Okay. That's where this takes place. They list people that are present. I'm just going to start at 12 o'clock here at the top, uh, from what we would call Turkey, but then was called Asia, but that is, in present day, we would call this Asia Minor, like that's the continent, it's, it's part of Asia, but that's Turkey. If you head to about two o'clock, the Parthian Empire, that's modern day Iran, okay? Keep coming down, this big area down here um, under the Euphrates River is Saudi, Saudi Arabia, Arabs, Okay, so you have, we have now Asians and Arabs and Jews from Jerusalem. That's three different ethnicities. Then we get Egypt and Cyrene, which is modern day Libya. So now we got North Africa. So we got Asians, Arabs, Jews, Africans. Let's keep going. See Rome way up there? That's Italy. That's Europeans. That's Judy's people, the Italians, okay? So just at the birth of the church, if I can remember, we got Asians, Arabs, Jews, Africans, and Europeans. I think we can learn something about God by the fact that he chose to birth his church in this multicultural setting. What, what does that tell us about God? That he loves it when his children get together. That the, he loves it when they're even willing to step outside of their cultural comfort zones and comes together. He could have chosen 
and he did in the Old Testament to focus on one ethnicity, the Jewish people. But in the New Testament, he chooses this multicultural religious festival, Pentecost. He says, that's where I'm going to land. And I'm going to use that as how I birthed the church. Not only that, not only is it culturally diverse, let me go down to verses 17 and 18. There's this passage about the fulfillment of a prophecy from Joel. This is Acts 2, 17 and 18. It says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. Now, this is, giving, this is the fulfillment of a prophecy from Joel about who will have the Holy Spirit. Who will have the Holy Spirit? It says, your sons and daughters, your old men, and your young men. So this is not just ethnically diverse. It is also chronologically diverse. There's young people and old people. Who's the Holy Spirit going to be poured out on? It says in verse uh, 18, men and women alike, they will prophesy. So this isn't just ethnically diverse and chronologically diverse. This is men and women alike will be doing these things, will be prophesying, will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is for everyone. The reason that Jesus chooses Pentecost to birth his, his church, I think, is to communicate to us that the kingdom of God is not supposed to flow along simply our personal preferential lines or our cultural lines, that the kingdom of God is supposed to transcend these things and ultimately sanctify and unite these things. And so we learn a lot about God when we see this diverse, spirit-filled community. If, it's, if a church is not diverse, it very well might just be built on people's personal preferences or personality. Now, there are reasons why some churches are not diverse. They might be in an just an area that's not diverse, and I get that. But then if it's all one ethnicity, then it better not be all one age. And it better not be just, you know, the men do all the talking and the women don't do anything. And it better not be that there is no, uh, you know, diversity among, like, educational background or socioeconomic status. Like, there are other ways to be diverse. I saw a hilarious illustration of church trying to communicate its diversity while I was in Ohio. I uh, looked up a church that I, I just happened to be sitting across the street for a church, so I looked it up and the church listed all of its information on their website. Church was 79 people. In a town that was 40% African American, the church was 79 people. And then they did their little diversity stats. 79 people. Whites, 79. <laughs> And a church is in, a, in a city that is 40% black. And I, I uh, kept reading. And they finally got to the part where they're diverse. They said, well, we do have 10 people that can't walk upstairs. That was their, that was their diversity. And they had one person that was hard of hearing and one person that was blind. That was their diversity. I would say probably just don't even mention it at that point. You know, like <laughs> just, just accept who you are. <laughs> And try to do something, you know, different. Uh, I don't mean to pick on them, but I am a little bit. Uh, there, are, there are so many different ways, you know, to 
make sure that you are ministering to a variety of people, whether that is to introduce younger, ministry to younger people or to uh, pursue those that are in recovery or to make sure that not everyone has to have the same educational level or be the same age or have the same family structure. There are so many ways that you can make sure, even in an area that is not culturally diverse, to make sure that you are ministering to a diverse uh, uh, in, a, in a way that facilitates diversity. Now, not only should you expect a diverse, spirit-filled community, you should expect spiritual growth. If you go to the end of Acts chapter 2, this is such a powerful description of the early church. So many people could just, we could, I mean, I could just sit in this passage for years. You should expect spiritual growth in a church. You should not be satisfied with stagnancy. You should not be satisfied with complacency. How did they demonstrate spiritual growth? Let me read Acts 2, 42, 46, and 47. It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and a sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Skip down to verse 46. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now, we skipped a section of Acts 2, so let me put it in context. By the time we get to this passage, the church is not 120 people. It's 3,120 people. Because 3,000 people come to Christ on this day. So the church goes from 120 to 3,120, which means that when this happens, those 120 people ain't spectators anymore. Those 3,000 people were all baptized in one day. You think they just had the pastor do it? Peter? I bet every one of those 120 people had to baptize 10 or more. There were pools all over Jerusalem for baptisms. Uh, these would be Jewish baptisms, but they used them for Christian baptisms where they're dunking people. All of a sudden, when the church grew, those 120 people all had to be leaders. Some of them had not been Christians more than a few weeks. But there was a need, and so they stepped into it. They didn't wait for someone else to do it. They stepped up. So here's how they were devoted to spiritual growth. It says that they are devoted, in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, at this point, they didn't have the New Testament. You know that already, but they did have the apostles. And so whatever the apostle Peter taught or later the apostle Paul or the apostle John, they devoted themselves to that because Peter and John were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. And so they devoted themselves to that. We do have the New Testament. And for us, the apostles' teaching is Right here, it consists of the New Testament. And so we should be devoted to the Bible. The Bible has to be foundational to any church culture. If you take the Bible out and you start to lower your view of Scripture, I don't know what you have anymore, but it's not a church. And if you just do a little research, every church or denomination that takes the Bible and lowers their view of it begins to decline. Frankly, I don't know why anyone would get out of bed on Sunday morning to hear someone preach some soft, vaguely biblical message. You know what I mean? Like, I, I wouldn't go to church if I knew that they were going to like tiptoe around it. If I'm going to roll out of bed and get my kids dressed and find parking in this neighborhood, I want to at least hear the Bible taught correctly. 
You know what I mean? The Bible has to be foundational to our church culture. So I want to let you know, and I don't, I'm going to do this as nicely as possible, but I'm going to start to uh, push you all a little bit more to back up what you say with the Bible. Okay? So when you say, uh, Pastor Jim, that, that service was a little too long. I'll say, you got a Bible verse for that? Or was that just your opinion? You say, oh, I, I, don't, I don't like that song we sang. Okay, give me a Bible verse that tells me why that song is bad. Okay? Well, I don't think we should spend money on this or I don't think we should do that. Okay, that's fine. Do you have a Bible verse or not? Does that make sense? So, oh, I ha- this is my feeling about a situation. Okay, that's your feeling. You can keep it to yourself then. What Bible verse are you rooting this in? Does that make sense? I'm going to do that as nicely as I possibly can for the first week. After that, all bets are off. But, but listen, if we're going to be devoted to the Bible, we have to make sure that we're using the Bible correctly as our means for how we think about things. They're also devoted, devoted not just to the teaching of the apostles, but to fellowship. Now, I know fellowship sounds like, you know, the name you give to the church basement, right? The fellowship hall, the fellowship room. Why do we call it that? Because that's where we all eat and get fatter. That is not the biblical concept of fellowship. The biblical concept of fellowship, actually the word in Greek means to contribute or to participate, which means laying back and watching everybody do stuff with your arms crossed is not fellowship. Not until you are participating and contributing are you fellowshipping. Fellowship is not show up, eat a meal, gossip, talk, and go about your way. That's not fellowship. Oh, that was good fellowship. No. Until you're contributing and participating, you're not actually having fellowship. The reason that this church in Acts was able to do so much is because everyone was contributing. And not everyone can contribute the same way. But everyone can contribute something. I, I would just say, even arriving on time in a good mood is a contribution. And it helps. I'm saying that to myself. I'm always on time. I'm always in a good mood. Now, I want to point something out because I think it's helpful for us to understand this. Look at verse 46. It says, they worshiped together at the temple each day. Now I want to remind you there were no church buildings at this time and all of the early followers of Jesus were Jewish. They'd been going to the temple their whole lives. To them, they had not left Judaism yet. They were just a little subgroup of Judaism. We are the Jews that happen to believe Jesus is the Messiah. So they had been going to temple and they continued to go to temple. Every day they went to the temple, but then you know what they weren't doing in the Jewish temple? Serving communion praying to Jesus, listening to the teachings of Peter. They went to the temple for the big meeting, but then verse 46, it says, they met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. So they had both a large meeting that they went to that was mixed. You know, most of the people in the temple weren't followers of Jesus. I have to remind myself this almost every Sunday, Don't take for granted that everyone in church on Sunday is a follower of Jesus. Don't take that for granted. 
But then they met also daily in people's homes. They did both. We've tried to structure our church that way. We obviously have Sunday morning services, but we also have almost on a daily basis discipleship groups that meet in smaller uh, homes or during COVID, we've been letting people meet on Zoom or in the church so that they can spread out. But as COVID kind of, I hope it's tailing off. I never know, depending on what I watch. But we're eventually, we're going to get back to homes and small groups. Now, let me say this. I'm sensing a shift in how we want to do stuff, and we're already 90% of the way through this shift. We got to get to this seven-day-a-week schedule thing that they had. There's a, for a long time, I thought, you've got to have as many, <laughs> as many small groups as possible. We've got to have 15 or 20. Now, and I've always felt like pressure to do that. Now I'm just saying, maybe if, as long as we got something seven days a week, we're doing what they did. And no one's going to be there seven days. No one person will be at all seven days a week. That's fine. I don't think they did. They were. But as long as there is an opportunity seven days a week, this is something that I, number one, saw in the Bible. But you know who I saw illustrate this? Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a meeting every day, morning, afternoon, and evening, if you need to be at one. I kind of think churches should... We're not getting that from Alcoholics Anonymous. We're getting it from this passage. But that is an illustration of how effective that could be. If every day of the week a new Christian could go to a Bible study here and then a Bible study there and then a prayer meeting here and a Sunday morning service there, imagine how quickly they could grow. It wouldn't take 10 years for you to go from milk to meat. In a year, you could get 10 years worth of sermons if you had an opportunity to do stuff as frequently as possible. Now, I'm not going to like burn us out and kill us with the heavy church schedule because we're already 90% of the way there. We have services on Sunday. We have discipleship groups on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. We have prayer meeting on Wednesdays. And on Saturdays, we have men's meetings, women's meetings, and other random events. We're about 90% of the way to a a seven-day-a-week church anyway. So we're just going to go ahead and tip that and try to make it 100% that there is not a day where there's, I mean, we'll take Christmas off, I guess, but there, you know, where anytime someone needs, if they need to be with other believers, there's an opportunity for that. Now, they're also devoted to sharing meals together. They would include regular meals and hospitality as well as communion. It's interesting to note that they celebrated communion in homes. They could not do it in the temple because not everyone is a follower of Jesus. So they did communion in homes. This is another change you're going to notice. We are going to begin to shift our communion to home-based or smaller gatherings of believers. One of the things that makes me nervous, every Sunday morning when we celebrate communion that there are potentially people who do not know Jesus taking communion and inviting judgment on themselves. And I don't know, you know, I can't see into their heart, so I don't know, should I slap the communion elements out of their hand or what am I supposed to do here? This is, I mean, I'm not Catholic, but I kind of understand why the, the priest sometimes like, oh, no, I know you. You know, like, I, I, I think it might be better for us as a church if we started serving communion 
in our discipleship groups, as well as having, and we've already, John Eric and I have already agreed, we're going to start having quarterly meals, just a meal, and have communion. We're not going to like do a seminar, just a meal. Communion is supposed to be part of a meal. I'm, I'm never, you can get all of the spiritual benefits of a little wafer in a plastic cup, because really it's from the Holy Spirit, but I, I've always felt like, oh, this cannot be what Jesus meant. You know, like uh, this cannot be what he was thinking when he said, this is my body and my blood. So I hope you hear me saying, we're doing this out of reverence for communion. We want to do it a way that's not just like obligatory first Sunday of the month, get it done so that we've, you know, that's superstition. That's not a biblical view of communion. Now, we're not going to, we will still do it on Sunday mornings, but you can let go of the first Sunday of the month tradition. We'll do it on Sunday mornings as the Holy Spirit prompts us. When, so if we're preaching on the cross, you know it would be a great way to end a service? Communion. If we're preaching on healing, you know it would be a great way to end the service? Healing. Uh, communion. Um, so if we're talking about unity, communion would be a great way to end that service. But we're not just going like to lock it in first Sunday of the month. We're going to do it when it relates to the passage or as the Holy Spirit leads. Then we'll find additional opportunities in small groups and you know, kind of midweek gatherings with meals so that communion really can be all that Jesus intended it to be. They were also devoted to prayer. Man, I'm running out of time. I'm not only halfway through the sermon, so let me just move a little faster. They were also devoted to prayer. We know that the church was birthed out of a prayer meeting. There were 120 Christians in Acts 2, at the beginning. The attendance at the prayer meeting was 120. Everybody went to the prayer meeting. The prayer meeting birthed the church. The prayer meeting is why they were all in agreement, all in one accord with one another. The prayer meeting is why God poured out his spirit through signs and wonders in the supernatural. Now, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking bread together, and prayer. And what was the result of that? It says in verse 47, each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I think it's interesting that as the church met day by day, they were added to day by day. So that's spiritual growth. When you look at a church and ask yourself, is it growing? You should be asking, is there good teaching? Is everyone contributing and fellowshipping and participating together? Are they, are they a prayerful church? Are people being added to their number, meaning are people coming to Christ on a regular basis? That's a sign of growth. Now, they, you should also expect miracles and awe. Chapter 2, verse 43 says, A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. I love that phrase, a deep sense of awe. It's like they looked around and said, Whoa. This, is, this has to be of God. There's no way. This was not like the synagogue that we all used to attend. We didn't see people healed. We didn't see unity like this. We didn't feel the weighty heaviness when we sang in the synagogue that we feel when we sing here. There was a sense of awe. You and I might call it reverence or the fear of the Lord. But there was this awe and this reverence that they felt which opened them up to miracles, signs, and wonders which are tangible, visible demonstrations of God's supernatural power or manifestations or expressions of his presence. They knew that God was with them because things were happening that only God could do. 
People were getting healed. People were getting set free. Things were happening that no human being can do in their own strength. Now, in my recent conversations with uh, people about their churches, one of them shared with me that their church recently had added um, strobe lights to their Sunday morning worship service and they were flashing them on the stage and they were, they were in talks to buy a smoke machine. And uh, they'd been lowering the lights during worship. And uh, this person that was telling me was like, I don't know, it seems like a lot. Uh, lights are one thing, but flashing them in people's faces, trying to invoke a seizure, you know, like uh, smoke, you know, you need lights so you can see the music, but you don't need lights to like shock people. A friend of mine explained to me why churches do that. Why do they do bright lights? Why do they turn down the house lights with then add strobe lights and then add smoke? And they said, well, they're trying to simulate God's presence from the temple or the tabernacle or Pentecost, but they lost me the first part of the phrase, simulate God's presence. You shouldn't have to simulate God's presence. You cultivate God's presence. You shouldn't have to spend money to make people feel duped into like, oh, look, this is just like in the Bible when there was thunder and lightning and, and smoke filled the temple. Like, yeah, but your smoke's coming out of this thing that's plugged into the floor, you know, like, Believe me, no one wants to see thunder and lightning and smoke more than me, but I just want it to be real. You know, I don't want it to be simulated. I would love it if this heavy weightiness filled all of our gatherings and, and like, I would love it if, and we did have this one time crazy thunderclap during a church service, like at a really critical point that was insane. Uh, but uh, I don't know if that was a, what that was, but... I just want it to be real, not simulated. So they, they read this and they say, well, we should have that. And then they simulate it rather than cultivate it. You cultivate it through like brokenness, fasting. I hear the trumpet of the Lord. <laughs> um, let me move on. <laughs> let me move on. You should expect voluntary sharing. This is the last one. Expect voluntary sharing. Acts 2, 44 through 46. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. Now, they sold some of their possessions but shared it with all of the people. I know people have read this and asked me, well, how come you didn't sell your house? I'm like, well, I'm one of those people that lets their house be used for the meetings. I'm not going to sell my house and just give it away. But if I had multiple houses or multiple uh, this, that, or the other thing, like the, the way I share is through just giving. But I'm glad that some people, we actually had a person recently who sold a house and gave a portion of the proceeds to our church, just like in the Bible. You know, we have people that will sell a car or do a side job or just regularly give and share the proceeds with the church and we're able to distribute it as there are needs. But not everyone sold their homes because you know how I know that? Because they met in homes. Someone, 
But you know, those people that let them use their homes were still sharing their homes. Here, come meet in my house. The church can use my house and eat my food. That's one way that they shared as well. They didn't sell everything, but they shared with everyone in the church. This is further fleshed out in Acts chapter 5. I'm not going to get into that. There's a, a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, that sell their house. They give a portion of the money to the church, but they actually say this is all the money. And they both die that day. Now the problem is not, Peter says, you could have kept all the money, but you lied. You pretended that you were doing more than you are actually doing. Now, really quickly, this is not communism. This is not socialism, this community sharing thing. People will go to this and say, oh, look, communism's in the Bible. Communism's not in the Bible. Capitalism's not in the Bible. Democrats aren't in the Bible. Republicans aren't in the Bible. That is called an anachronism when you take something from now and cram it back into the Bible. This is not communism because it's voluntary. The government's not making them do this. Okay, now I covered that there. Now, Okay, so these are the four biblical expectations from this passage. Expect a diverse, spirit-filled community. Expect spiritual growth. Expect miracles and awe. Expect voluntary sharing. Now, I have found that many people who attend church don't actually want all of these things. They don't want to be challenged to share. It's crazy, like I said earlier, it's crazy to me that there are people in, that attend churches that really don't want the Bible to be the Bible. Pick and choose. I, you know, I like that part, but I don't like this part. There are people that attend church that don't want miracles. And so these are biblical expectations. And I think, I think every church in the world would be better off if they used the, the, the book of Acts as their model. Not the church down the street, not the church they grew up in, not the church they see in their social media feed, not the church they see on TV. That is not the model. This is the model. Does that make sense? This is the model. Now we can learn from other congregations and learn, maybe they're doing, maybe they're doing the Bible really well and we can learn from that, but they're not the model. They might be a help, they might be an illustration, but they're not the model. Now, Here's how I want to wrap up. I'm going to pray. <clears throat> I'm going to close us in prayer, and uh, I'm going to let those that are watching online kind of be dismissed. For those of you that are in the room, I said, I'm going to ask you at the end of the sermon, which of these four expectations is God poking in your life? And what is he prompting you to respond to? And we're going to try to have a brief discussion about that. So let me pray, and we're going to dismiss those that are watching online because there's no way they'd be able to hear what's going on in the room. They can have this discussion with those that they're watching with if they're able. Jesus, we bless your word. I pray, God, that we would respond to your word as the Holy Spirit prompts us. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to put in action, put into action these principles from your word. I pray that in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at 
blessphiladelphia.com.